Christ the King, enthroned white vestments, we think of him as on high. The feast of Christ the King has an end times dimension, pointing to the day when Jesus will return and the kingdom of God will be established in all its fullness to the ends of the earth. It leads into Advent, when the church anticipates Christ's second coming. We sing majestic hymns, we crown him with many crowns. It's all very beautiful, as it should be. Our gospel reading begins with the very royal arrival of the Son of Man. Matthew has been building up to this for weeks now, the bridegroom. He is finally arriving with his angels and with all the nations gathered before him. It is very Christ the King-like. But we need to remember, amidst all the pomp and circumstance, that Jesus was a very unusual king. He wasn't a conqueror. He didn't lead a well-trained militia of armed soldiers. He was the Prince of Peace. His crown was a crown of thorns. He ruled not with an iron fist, but with compassion. And his courtiers were not the rich and powerful, but the marginalized, the poor, the sick, the hungry. So as this son of man, this king, begins his work, his judgment, things don't play out as we might expect. This is the final judgment after all, the sheep from the goats. And we want very much to be with the sheep. This is what we've been waiting for, hoping for. This is what, if we have been good listeners, we have been preparing for, staying awake for, filling our lamps for, to be ready and to join the flock, the flock of that good shepherd. In so many of the parables we have heard, the thing that is going to help us gain membership in that flock is the fact that we have faith. Faith and not works, right? This is what we have heard time after time. People are healed by their faith. They are saved by their faith. We can't earn our way to salvation because it is given to us freely and fully by the grace of God. But here, in Jesus' final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, it would appear that what counts is not our confession of faith, but whether over the course of our lifetimes we have cared for needy people. For some of us, this might come as a relief, because for some of us, I would argue at times, most of us, have some issues with our faith. But caring for someone in need, that is a simple, concrete action. Welcoming, feeding, clothing, visiting, caring, these are actions that we can wrap our heads around. No theological complications or implications, just action. It sounds straightforward enough, but as we are prone to do, we often complicate this simple command. We think we are acting with compassion and with empathy, when in reality, in practice, we are falling short. I remember the first time my husband John and I took our family to New York City to see the two most important sites, the motherships, if you will, of girls and boys at the time, the Pokemon Center and the American Girl Store. <laughs> Prior to our getting married, John had lived in New York for almost a decade, and I had spent a similar amount of time in Washington, D.C. We knew how to deal with public transportation, 
and crowds and homeless people. My children, however, had spent their short lives in a town of fewer than 2,000 people. All of this was new to them. And the situation with the homeless was something they simply did not understand. They asked us why people were sitting next to buildings. Why were they holding signs? Why did they look so sad? Why weren't we stopping to help them? Why were we going to buy dolls and Pokemon cards when people were hungry? They looked at us and noticed that we were staring ahead, avoiding eye contact. Why weren't we looking at them? We told them not to stare and to keep walking. Now, there are all kinds of reasons to keep walking. We can't help everyone. We don't have the money or the time. We can't tell who is really needy and who is looking for money for perhaps less noble purposes. The person might be unstable. Maybe they don't want help. There are all kinds of reasons. I'm not sure what answer we should have given our children that day, but don't stare, keep walking was most assuredly the wrong one. That experience stuck with my children. Two of them ended up in Boston for college, and both, without any prompting from me, volunteered with the homeless. My son Adam cooked breakfast at a shelter two days a week all through college, and my daughter Anna worked on a project to help the homeless record their stories. She often recounted to me how many of these people had led active, productive lives prior to becoming homeless. They had had homes and families and jobs, and it just took one or two twists of fate, a divorce, a layoff, an illness or injury, perhaps an addiction, to land them on the streets. We could be one of them, Mom, she reminds me. We are called in this gospel to remember the least of them, the most needy, the most vulnerable. We are not called to scrutinize or evaluate or judge them, but rather to look at them and see the face of Jesus. Welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and those who are in prison. It doesn't say to welcome only the stranger who is here legally or those who are in prison but aren't guilty. Jesus is talking about the least, those on the border, those locked in a cell. That is what we are told to do. The most high and the most lowly, they are one and the same. Here at Trinity, we do an amazing job of helping people in our community and beyond. We give generously, and our grants committee spends countless hours determining how to allocate the funds. We carefully vet organizations to ensure that our donations go where they will do the most good. I am not suggesting that any of us stop donating to worthy causes. But this gospel passage, I don't think this passage is about writing checks. This passage is personal. This is Jesus speaking to each of us, one-on-one, -on -one, about the end times and that final tally. Kind of like in the Dickens story, Christmas Carol, this is where that ghost of Christmas past is looking at all we've done. How did we act when we looked into the faces of those who needed us most? Were we able to forget about ourselves and worry about others? Did we see Jesus there? And when we look at images of Jesus, do we see their faces reflected in his? Now, unlike a Dickens novel, I don't think the purpose of this passage is to scare us. It's to steer us back on course. 
It is to encourage some honest self-reflection. We have to find a balance, after all. We don't want to be taken advantage of. We don't want to put ourselves in danger. But we do need to do our best. Do your best. When you are tempted to turn away, see Jesus there. And then ask yourself if you are doing your best. Live into this call. It isn't an easy call. I have a friend from seminary who has a prison ministry, a death row ministry. She visits men who haven't seen the light of day for many years and who will never see it again. These men have much in common, long histories of childhood abuse and marginalization and eventually violent crime. She introduces a program to them that is similar to our own catechesis of the Good Shepherd. It's called Godly Play. And she uses this curriculum designed for young children to teach them about Jesus, about forgiveness, about love. And when she tells them that God loves them, many of them reveal that this is the first time they have heard those words from anyone. She isn't a therapist or a confidant. She isn't asking them if they are sorry. She is simply spending time with them, seeing them, letting them know that they are loved by a God that most of them have never known. The legal system has determined that these men will die one day for their crimes. But my friend has no interest in their crimes. She sees Jesus in each of them. I'm not sure I have her strength, but her ministry gives me the incentive to take some first steps, to suspend judgment, and simply see people, tend to people who need help. Her ministry reminds me that God loves freely, and so should we. Our lives have more meaning than we imagine. We might think that we are just a cog in the wheel, that our actions don't matter, that we are powerless, but that's not true. When we serve a bowl of soup, when we visit someone in the hospital, when we offer comfort to someone in need, those actions mean something. As we enter the season of Advent and embark on these coming weeks of self-reflection and preparation, I challenge you to lean into the idea that we don't achieve salvation, we discover it, where we least expect it, in the faces of the needy, the suffering, the lonely, the prisoner. And in those same faces, if we open our eyes and our hearts and allow ourselves to love and care for each other in the way that we are meant to, we will also discover Christ the King.